I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. On this episode, Girlhood Interrupted, The Erasure of Black Girls' Childhood with Talia Gonzalez. Nice. Talia Gonzalez, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So your study titled Girl Interrupted, The Erasure of Black Girls' Childhood, it showed that black girls were viewed as less innocent than their white peers. And it was a groundbreaking study. And I read it, I think, sometime last year. And I think the first thing that I thought, um, let me just go through the snapshot of what the study showed. It showed that the black girls were less nurturing, um, needed less protection, less support, and they were more independent and they knew more about sex. But when I first read it, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm black. And I was at one point in my life, I was a little black girl. I'm also a mother. So, you know, I had a sense of relief because as a mother, this has always been emotional for me. But the paper put an academic framework around what a lot of people I think have felt as black girls and as mothers, you know, for years. So I'm just curious, what prompted the study for you? I think we all came to the study to highlight the lived experiences of young black girls and black girls and black women, just as you said, right? It's not as if we created this, made this up. We put an academic framework, we put a name around it. So for myself, coming to this work, in particular, representing youth as a lawyer in both the juvenile justice system and in school expulsions, I knew disproportionately that a lot of the young people that I was seeing in those cases were young Black girls. And the ways in which they would be described in police reports or by teachers or by just others interacting with them really signaled something else was going on. Um, and I think we didn't have a good way of, of naming that and capturing that. And it's also so important to the work of the Center on Poverty Inequality, which focuses on marginalized girls and, and really elevating how we can better have policy and practice serve their needs. So often girls and Black girls in particular are really left out of the conversation. And so it's, it's so significant that we're bringing their voices and their lived experiences in. I think what was so striking was the age range in which these perceptions start to surface. I think your study said something between like ages five and 14, which is essentially all of girlhood. Right. So, and we broke it down by four age groups, zero to four, five to nine, 10 to 14, and then 15 to 19. Um, And it was really, as you said, in those second and third age groups, the five to nine and the 10 to 14, where we see the peak in terms of scores, meaning as people were responding, it was increasing. So the magnitude of these scores were being understood that way, that participants were viewing black girls collectively as more adult-like than white girls. And that in particular, they were perceiving black girls as needing less protection and less nurturing as white girls. And as you said, they were more knowledgeable about these adult topics. And in particular, sex was one of those. Yeah, but you can trace the adultification of black children back to slavery, correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, As I said, you know, as academics, we... We put a name to something. We built on the work of, you know, Philip Goff and, and his colleagues at Stanford looking at this relative to black boys. But this is so much coming out of a social and cultural stereotype that's how adults perceive children. And for black women and for black girls, that's about the dominant paradigms of black femininity coming out of slavery. You know, I think it's so interesting because we can put a historic perspective and lens on this. And when we think about Sally Hemings, for example, right, you know, so often there's this construction of talking about Sally Hemings as Thomas Jefferson's mistress, but, you know, in actuality, she was his property and she was quite young um, in terms of mothering his children. And so we see the role that she was playing really as being 
hypersexualized, right? As, you know, being also that self-sacrificing, nurturing mammy, you know, so all of those perceptions and biases that were built in around slavery, the sapphire, that loud, aggressive, you know, stubborn, angry black woman, that Jezebel, that hypersexualized, and even the mammy, the self-sacrificing, nurturing one, it's being applied as stereotypes. And that is very much coming into black girlhood. And so those, those caricatures of black femininity are then being layered upon young black girls. And it changes the discourse about that, how they're perceived. Right. So essentially, all of the stereotypes that are attached to black women, adult women, are being projected onto young girls, such as aggression and anger and being hypersexualized. Absolutely. And so then you see that the patterns of discipline or patterns of exclusion, depending on the public system, or even how we think about the juvenile justice system, also, you know, reinform and reinforce what is or isn't acceptable in terms of femininity and womanhood for for Black girls. So you talked about some of your own experiences and the way that educators and teachers were describing some of the the Black girls that were, I guess, subjected to punishment in those systems. What were some of the things that you heard that stood out to you? Just some of the descriptions that you can remember. Well, I think it's, it's language that people use. And it's very much, you know, often you would hear, oh, she's just angry. You know, she's just stubborn. We talk about the research of others in a report where, you know, it's how young girls don't fit into the decorum of their white peers. They're unladylike. And I think all of those were the types, that's the type of language that was often being described when you would meet 101 or if you would sit in a hearing. And the same is true in terms of officers. This idea that a young black girl was, was threatening, that they you know, there was a belief, and, and we talk about this in our report, the belief that she wasn't as young as she was. Right. Um, and that, and so, you know, it's, it's all of these other ways in describing someone who is absolutely a child, deserves the protections of what it is to be a child, and equally deserves them in the sense of how our justice system is created. I mean, we recognize that childhood is a different time of social and psychological development, and we shouldn't allow that only one category of young people gets that sense of leniency, developmental process, freedom and rehabilitation, but yet others don't. Right. So, you know, I I think you talk about also that there are some Supreme Court cases that should limit a child's culpability. I think there's one um, Roper versus Simmons. So how can the legal system overlook those decisions and get away with making a child's biological age something more nuanced and something more subjective? Well, you have to remember that, you know, Roper versus Simmons is a question that turns on the imposition of the death penalty in juvenile cases. So, you know, that's not going to be applicable to a school expulsion and discipline case. Right. So we have, you know, so part of the protections that exist at the Supreme Court level and in terms of federal law, they don't necessarily come into play in so many of these other important nuanced one-on-one experiences that you might have with a school police officer, that you might have with an officer on the street, that you might have with a teacher, with an administrator. And so part of it is is taking what we know in terms of psychological development, social development, emotional learning, um, and ensuring that those are the best practices that are being put into place in policy and in practice and not relying on the law to be the mechanism by which this change is, is occurring, or more importantly, by which people are being held to these standards. 
So you also talk about quite a bit about how a black girl's experience in academia or specifically, I guess, a classroom. So how might a classroom experience differ for a black girl in relation to her peers? Um, So I think a really common experience that we see and the the ACLU trace this in in some of their research as well is um, what they're being removed from the classroom for. So really subjective violations of dress code, um, the use of a cell phone. Um, something that, you know, is being considered defiance. And and some states have passed legislation that have removed the ability to punish a a child for willful defiance, but there's other ways in which you can characterize them as being defiant. So it's really sitting in a classroom and seeing that your peers aren't necessarily being challenged and treated in the same way for the same types of behaviors at a very sort of specific level, or just removing um, a young person and in particular a young black girl from a classroom at a very early age for behavior that is so much about being a young child. Uh, You know, I work with a a pediatrician up in San Francisco and, you know, she really wonders relative to some of the kids that she sees in her clinic who've been removed from preschool for what teachers will call acting out, but yet disproportionately all of those are young black girls. Um, So even just the the sense of acting out is differentiated along this intersectional line of, of gender and race. Right. So I know that a lot of companies are taking this seriously and there's lots of implicit bias training, right? Mm-hmm. Is this happening at the level of systems where girls interact in schools and in the justice system? I think in the criminal justice system, we're not seeing the trajectory around implicit bias training that we've seen in the private sector. Um, you know, there isn't uh, necessarily Im- implicit bias training for prosecutors, for judges, in the same way that, that we see that that happens across Fortune 500 companies or smaller companies as well. I think schools and, and the educational system more broadly has made uh, a greater attempt and inroad, but professional development training and time for teachers and other staff members is so precious and so limited. And so unless you're in a district that prioritizes this as a question and this as an issue, you're less likely to have access. And so your professional development time is going to be allocated to a whole range of, of other important issues. And then this sort of becomes that leftover space where maybe there's the ability to have an explicit or um, implicit bias training, but probably not as likely and definitely not something that would count for professional development. You talk about the idea that black children and black girls are often seen as biologically older than they actually are. What are the implications of that perception? Well, I think if you're standing in front of a judge and the perception is that you are older, even if you biologically aren't older, then they might treat you more harshly. You know, we know that coming out of, you know, the 1980s and 1990s, we saw so much legislation being passed that was zero tolerance and aimed at youth and in particular youth of color. You know, and you even had the do the adult crime, get the adult time, even as sort of language that was really prevalent in the media. But this was all about juveniles and young people. And so it permeated this sensibility feeding into this idea of adultification, permeating this sensibility of, well, you know, this young person isn't going to learn unless I treat them like an adult. So, you know, 
what it means is that if, if you're standing in front of um, a judge and, and they're sentencing you, they may look at you as being older and therefore it's more appropriate uh, in the scope of what they have in terms of their discretion to move forward and advance a harsher punishment. The same is true at the front end on the prosecutorial side um, in that a prosecutor may ultimately decide not to advance a case for a young person because they feel like they have that ability, right? So they're, they're put in a position where they ultimately have discretion and that they want to ensure that the ongoing developmental processes and aims towards rehabilitation are met. So in lieu of moving forward, um, they refer them to a restorative justice program, for example. You right. know, restorative justice has become, you know, a, a pretty dominant paradigm as a way to not have young people enter into the juvenile justice system. And so that's the decision that may be get made in that space. But if you look at the young person standing in front of you, or you read their file, more importantly, because they're not standing in front of you, and you read things that describe them as loud and aggressive and angry, and there's language and attributes that are being placed on them about their behaviors, you might make a different set of decisions. And so it's it's how the acculturation is being expressed in all of the different documents that you might have access to. And, and the same is true, you know, in the context of, of schools as well, you know, that ultimately how, how, you know, how a young person is being perceived, how a black girl is being perceived as older could mean that the difference between being sent to the principal's office and having the opportunity to sit down with that teacher, um, sit down with a peer and, and work through a healthy conflict resolution. You know, there's this subconscious in so many ways use of these images to say that someone is defying these particular sets of behaviors that they're supposed to do. You know, girls are supposed to be docile. Girls are supposed to be, you know, selfless. You know, all of these different ways in which the decorum that's associated with femininity and youthfulness is just, it's inappropriately being applied. Right, but there's a link to what happens to these girls in an academic setting and to what happens in the criminal justice system. Statistically, I think that if there are more punitive measures like suspensions, isn't there a link to their ending up in the criminal justice system? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the school to prison or the cradle to prison pipeline is well documented. And some studies have shown that that having a single touch point put, makes it three times more likely. A single touch point, meaning a single suspension or expulsion, that exclusionary discipline, makes it three times more likely that a young person will enter into the, the juvenile justice system. And so, you know, from a, a national landscape, that means we also have to look at who's being referred in schools to the juvenile justice system, even if even if there wasn't a suspension or expulsion. So a particular, you know, incident happens at a school, there's an issue that's raised at the school, and disproportionately one class of, of young people, particularly, you know, young black people and young black girls are then 
you know, referred to law enforcement at higher rates than their white peers. So what, so what can be done about this? I was reading a study in The Atlantic about schools and the diversity of the, the faculty. 40% of U.S. schools, they, they have no teachers of color on staff, which, which might be helpful. I mean, is that one of the things that would help, I guess, at least in the academic setting? I think it's a range of things. In your earlier question, asking about training, you know, I think that becomes an essential component to it. You know, what is it to have adultification named front and center as part of equity and bias training? Um, What is it to then think about the practices in a school? You know, for schools that are moving away from exclusionary discipline, then the possibility of Black girls being disciplined more harshly for these subjective infractions starts to dissipate. And if that's coupled with the fact that there's now been thoughtful, essential, and real training about adultification available, you know, you have both an intervention and you have a preventative moment, you know, so I think it's all of those, you know, and again, as schools move more towards restorative justice models, you know, when you change the relationship that students and adults have, meaning if you're doing community building circles where a teacher is starting their class every day with a circle and a check-in, it changes the way that the young people and the adults see each other as equal, strong, capable human beings. You know, there's been really interesting and early research looking at this specifically for girls and the emotional literacy that comes out of restorative practices being done with girls in that context where it isn't about a harm in the more traditional way of thinking about restorative justice, but it's about building a school culture that is about respect and relationships and that that flows back and forth between the teachers and the adults in the building and the the teachers and the adults with the young people in the building. And so it changes then whether or not a teacher is going to jump to that immediate moment of saying, I'm observing a behavior that I think doesn't comport with what being ladylike is, or I'm observing a behavior. And instead of perceiving you as loud, I'm going to recognize that you're just a young person, right? You know, you're acting in the ways that young people should be acting. You know, it's, it's starting to unwrap all of those pieces. It's a continuum of practice. There's not one answer. And I think in some ways, that's what's so important is that it allows the flexibility within school communities to really develop and adapt and adopt practices and policies that can really serve the needs not just of all their students, but in particular, those most marginalized students. And Black girls fall into that as a category and recognizing that there's a uniqueness to being a Black girl in our society contemporarily, and and that that's important. That's part of what schools can be as these communities of health and well-being. It doesn't have to be a place of exclusion and punishment. So for for listeners and for, you know, mothers like myself or, you know, people who are outside of the system, what can we do to help bridge the gap between research like yours and between these public systems, the school systems and the and policymakers, for instance? Well, I think that, you know, there's so many wonderful 
parent advocacy groups. So for parents that are looking for other parents in their communities coming together and being able to act collaboratively, cohesively, and speak to the school in that way, I think that's really important. So it doesn't feel isolating because I think it's really easy as a mother or a father to be walking into the school as a single person and voicing their concerns about how their daughter is being treated. Um, And there may be a dismissal of that, but then what is it to see five, 10, 15 parents all doing that? So where there's the possibility to foster a foundation of stronger relationships with other parents and speak collectively about it, that is immeasurable. You know, I see that across the country in terms of parent advocacy and the impact that that can have. You know, second, it's 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 not just demanding from a school and a public system generally about ensuring that it's a nurturing, positive learning experience. It's looking at the ways in which you can provide examples of that. You know, what is it to go to a school board if that's if you have that time and space and ability and recognizing that that's not available for all parents and we shouldn't then make assumptions and presumptions about those parents, but that you know, bringing to schools other examples of where schools are doing it right. Um, Because it's not as if every single school and every single classroom that we can say homogeneously that this is what's happening. You know, there are places across this country, really wonderful sites of experimentation about different ways of learning, thinking about social emotional foundations, thinking about restorative justice, implementing interventions and, and, and bias training where it's going really well. So I think bringing those examples to administrators, to school boards, to teachers, that's a really important role that parents can have in closing, you know, I think what this gap looks like in knowledge. But again, parents shouldn't have a relative burden placed upon them to re-educate and and in particular, black parents and parents of color shouldn't be re-educating, you know, white administrators and white teachers about what this means. You know, there there has to be a shared accountability in, in terms of what systems look like. And then relative to the the, the juvenile justice system, it's an ability to, you know, be engaged in the democratic process. It's thinking about, you know, when legislation is up that is going to be more progressive. And I don't just mean progressive in sort of the liberal white progressive way, but but is more progressive in that it's eliminating something like willful defiance or it's creating increased access to restorative justice so that more young people don't go into the juvenile justice system, or it's limiting the discretion that judges or prosecutors might have in in their roles around certain crimes. It's voting for those. It's it's voting people into office at all levels, at, at the very local level, all the way up to the state level, and all the way up to the national level, who are really aligned with thinking about what are the ways that we can invest and support our young people? You know, what are the ways in which we can start to move beyond all of these different dichotomies and know that that adultification is real? Know that, you know, how this is playing out in the lived experience of young Black girls is real um, and having a different sense and acknowledgement of truth. You know, I think all of those are different ways at which people and parents and care, you know, communities of care can all become involved in that. And the same is true for, you know, academics. You know, they, you know, academics play an important role. Policymakers play an important role. This is not something that, you know, one person or one community or one set of individuals should bear the burden. You know, there should be a commitment to 
to really knowing that young people are young people and they should be treated fairly, they should be treated equitably, and that they have that right to ongoing development, to growing into the wonderful human beings and adults that they can be. Talia Gonzalez, thank you so much for your work on this project and thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you find the conversations that I have on The Electorate helpful and you'd like to help support the women whose work I feature here, please subscribe to The Electorate on Apple Podcasts. It's free and it's easy. It takes less than five seconds to subscribe. Just hit the little subscribe button in your podcast app and you're done. When you subscribe to The Electorate, it helps our ratings rise and it also helps more people discover us. I truly appreciate your support and thank you so much again for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.